0: My name is Matt Sparaza.
1: Father Sam Kachuba, welcome to The Tangent. Dr. Scott Hahn, welcome back. It's so good to have (laughs) you with us again.
2: It's great to be with you, Father Sam and Matt. I only wish we had uh, video to match the audio, but just to have the conversation is well worth our time.
1: Amen. Now, we've been living off of something great from Matt. Uh, We've been living off of this, this joy that he's had. The last time you were with us, I don't know. I don't remember what he said. Matt remembers it in vivid detail because it was so important, oh, yes. but he said something and and you told him, Matt, you've put your finger on it precisely. And that was enough for Matt to, it's carried him through all these months uh, of just knowing that that he was right and and you saw that he was right
2: (laughs) (laughs) nothing feels as good and the the truth you're right yes
0: (laughs) when i when i made that comment and you affirmed me in my rightness um i was actually basically just quoting from your book um
2: (laughs) no wonder i agree (laughs) and emphatically (laughs) thanks matt (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) I think you were right. So, you know, we're all on the same page. Yeah. Um, The other thing is that you set a trend for the tangent where we began referring to guests as friend of the show. So you were the original friend of the show. (laughs) The first friend. Um, The first friend. First friend. Yeah. So welcome back. First friend of the show, Dr. Well, Scott. And I think, I think we <laughs> should,
1: we should give Dr. Dr. Han some credit here too, because part of the reason he's friend of the show is that we've had so many people from, uh, who have published through Emmaus road publishing who have joined us yes. for, for conversations and everything. Um, and you know, the great comparison that I always have to your story, Matt was that when we had, uh, Dr. Nina, Sophie Hedermann as, mm. uh, one of our guests, she was my classmate in theology. And, uh, I always remember the day that she turned around in class and looked at me and asked me what the professor had just said, because she didn't understand. And I thought that was the greatest thing in the world, that she thought I would have a clue. <laughs> That's the comparison that I've always had. Well, anyway, let's let's get right into it here, because uh, Dr. Han, you've got a, a new book, Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. And I'm really excited about this, because this is actually a theme that keeps coming up. This idea of being in exile, uh, this idea of of just kind of chaos all around us and and needing some wisdom to kind of keep our eyes fixed on, on the prize, to keep us focused on what's really necessary. So can you take us through a little bit of the genesis of this book?
2: Yeah, I mean, the book actually got started about four or five years ago. I was working on a book entitled The First Society, The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order where I was reflecting upon an experience that I had back in the mid eighties as a brand new doctoral student in the PhD program at Marquette, taking a doctoral seminar from the redoubtable Father Donald Keefe, a genius, both in law and in theology. And it was a large seminar. We had about uh, about a dozen students, and I think it was split practically 50-50 Protestant and Catholic. And this is the mid eighties. It was the Reagan revolution. John Paul was still young the moral majority, and Catholics and Protestants were, for the first time, allied in pro-life work, among other things. And so, the discussion uh, was about what role, if any, does religion play in the public square? And the debate was going around and around, and then suddenly, out of the blue, Father Keefe just interrupted and opined out loud, staring out the window. He said, you know, all this debate, the fact is, if Catholic married couples simply live the grace of the sacrament of matrimony, in one generation, the result would be a transformed culture, a Christian society. Oh, but I digress. And I don't remember another word that he said, or the rest of the discussion, because it landed like a laser beam on the back of my retina. And I'm thinking, did he just say what I thought I heard him say? And it it, it struck me in some ways as hyperbolic, but then the more I thought about it, The more I realized he was right—that it it isn't up to politicians and the promises they make and never keep—it really is up to us. And so that became the vignette that opened the book, the first society, the uh, sacrament of matrimony, and the restoration of the social order. That was also the beginning of a close friendship with my co-author Brandon McGinley, because Brandon gave me a lot of pushback. He was newly married, you know, had kids. Now he has got six. Uh, But I was an old Codger by then. And so he was fresh out of Princeton, had studied with Robbie George. And so we had a lot of interaction that led to our first book together, which was entitled It Is Right and Just Why the Future of Civilization Depends Upon True Religion. And, you know, this was more than just a line lifted from the liturgy It is Right and Just. It was pointing to the fact that in antiquity, the idea of justice had as its highest expression. the the virtue of religion, where you sacrifice, but only to the supreme deity, out of love, but that it is right and just always and everywhere to do this. And it would be wrong and horribly unjust not to. And so the idea of restoring the centrality of the virtue of justice known as religion, the act of sacrifice from the heart, but not just personally and privately, but publicly and socially, it's like Catholics I ran into didn't even want Catholic culture. They didn't want to think about it. Mm. You know, it's like, don't go there. And I'm like, why not? Because if the spillover effect of living our marriage and our family and in our community would be to set in motion, the things that would transform culture, why wouldn't you at least allow yourself to kind of imagine what it would be like? And so we wrote that book together and we got such a, such a positive response. I mean, it was tsunami. Mm. We had no idea. So many people would read this and say, wow, I've been feeling this. I've been thinking this, but nobody's been writing this, you know? And at the same time, sometimes the same people were telling us, yeah, it's exciting, but it's also really frustrating because we're never going to live to see it. Our kids are never going to live to see it. Our great grandkids are not going to ever see a Catholic culture, you know? And so What do we do with ourselves? What do we do with them in the meantime? And it just struck me. It struck Brandon as well. You go back to Richard John Newhouse, who was a great convert, a great neoconservative, along with George Weigel, a friend of ours. And yet his last book was American Babylon, where no matter how pro-American he was, he had come to recognize that there really is an analogy for the Jews waking up in exile there in Babylon to American Catholics waking up in a postmodern America where you've got secularism, you've got the dictatorship of moral relativism, you've got cancel culture, everybody's woke. And suddenly the things that were unstatable, unthinkable are now irrefutable. They're axiomatic. And so Brandon and I set about ourselves the task of okay, What can we do now to help people avoid two extremes? On the one hand, nostalgia. So we're just kind of, you know, we're just kind of pining away, wishing that it were the 1950s before Vatican II, when Fulton Sheen won the Emmys, you know, and when <laughs> Bing Crosby played a priest in the Bells of St. Mary and. Catholic convents, monasteries, and seminaries were all full to overflowing, you know, Mm -hmm. and I can totally understand why people would succumb to that. I have to fight the temptation myself, but it's pointless. It's completely unproductive, you know, because you just can't do that. You might learn lessons, but on the other hand, I would say the majority of people today look at the horrendous circumstances and they're much more prone to anger, to sadness, to despair, to cynicism, where they're going to lash out and seek to basically find people to blame for all of these things, which I would say is arguably even more unproductive than just the succumbing to the temptation of nostalgia. And so what we do in this book is to set out a kind of middle path to get ourselves through it. I mean, it's taken, it's so highly unoriginal. Because it's taken from our first Pope's first encyclical in 1 Peter chapter 1, the opening verse is where Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the exiles of the dispersion. And then he identifies Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and other places and describes how they are chosen and destined by God the Father, sanctified by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Okay, so we're exiles in the dispersion. Well, I mean, Peter had to know that taps into a really deep part of what we call the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, because like 85% of the history of Israel was spent with Israelites living outside the promised land or living in a divided way or living in exile. We tend to kind of focus, if not fixate on David and Solomon. But that's like, our it's true, it's historically accurate, but it becomes a kind of Arthurian legend where the, mm. the covenant becomes a kind of Camelot, like, oh, the golden age, it didn't even last 80 years. And so for the next several centuries, practically for 700 plus years, the people of God had to figure out how to fend for themselves in Babylon, in Assyria, in Medo-Persia, and we just don't like to think about that. And yet the prophets thought about it all the time and wrote about it. And so bottom line is this, we wanted to propose what we call the Jeremiah option. Why? Well, Jeremiah's predecessor, Isaiah, was warning the people back in the 8th century BC, it's coming, punishment, you know, the the, the discipline, you know, God doesn't punish his people just to get back at them like a divine vendetta, But he does punish them. He disciplines them to get them back to him. And if they don't come, then the punishment is. And so Jeremiah, a century later, was the prophet who was alive at the time that Babylon took Judea, came back and took Jerusalem. So he is writing oracles, letters to the first waves of the Jews who are waking up in total darkness and despair as captives dispersed throughout Babylon and, you know, it's sort of like, okay, brace yourself because this is going to be rather dark, dark teaching, dark instruction. But instead, what you have in Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is for many of my friends, their life verse of spiritual comfort and hope. In Jeremiah 29 verse 11, he writes, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare, not for woe or for evil, to give you a future. And a hope so that you will call upon me. And it's like, okay, everybody who chooses that as their life verse because it inspires them, seldom do they study the context because right. there would be no Jeremiah 29, 11 if there weren't <laughs> Jeremiah 29 verses 1 to 10. And this is where he's given them practical advice, seven practical principles that will lead them to discover that, in fact... God's plans for us are not for woe, but for welfare. And so what we spell out here is basically the Jeremiah option where he walks them through seven practical ways you could not only survive in a pagan culture, but you could thrive. And you can actually set into motion a kind of counterforce where the covenant that you keep is going to end up illuminating the darkness around you. And We had so much fun writing this book, and once again, we weren't ready for the response. The readers were like, this is what we needed, especially after that other book that got our hopes so high, and then you wake up, you look around, and it's not just the temporal authorities, it's the spiritual authorities. You see confusion and corruption in the church, as well as in the government, overseas, in the Vatican, as well as here. What is a poor Catholic to do? take hope and this is how
1: <laughs> i'm so glad you're bringing this up because this is actually yeah. exactly the stuff that matt and i were talking about as we're getting ready for this that th- these are precisely the issues that that we're facing chaos in the world right now i mean look chaos. at the news and it's it's disgusting it's it's terrifying there's there's all this stuff happening in the life of the church itself there's a lot of catholics right now feeling like they're exiles even within the life of the church um so I, i'm really glad that you bring this up and i, and I want to get into all of this but first i like that you use this phrase the jeremiah option mm-hmm. and i wonder is that a deliberate choice of words given that we also
2: have this other book that's out there the benedict option yeah uh, and honestly both both brendan and i really respect the benedict option I, and yeah. i i think it's a i think it's a healthy proposal um I'm not going to take issue with any of it, you know, because I think that it is what we are looking for, and that is constructive ideas. Yeah. Uh, Now, the author, I I wish I knew him as a friend. I don't, but we've had some contact. You know, he's a convert to the Catholic faith, but then he gave into despair and he left the Catholic church. And now he's Orthodox. And I... I get it. You know, I totally understand why you know you you just jump overboard because the stench inside the ark just seems so much worse than the flood outside the ark. You know, um, but I would say stay on board, and that's what yeah. Jeremiah is basically doing. And so, yeah, there are other options out there, but I think the tendency for Catholics can be a kind of. Approach to Amish Catholicism, where we circle the wagons, where we isolate ourselves, where we insulate our kids. And yes, there really is a proper place and time to insulate your kids, to watch out what they're seeing online, sure. to make sure that they go to good schools homeschool, classical academy, a private Catholic school, a parochial school if it's really, really solid. But I think. What ends up happening is we're, we feel like moles kind of digging holes and just trying to get through this next half acre of dirt uh, before it collapses. Whereas I think there are apostolic strategies that Jeremiah provides that you know show us, okay, even if we are outnumbered, you know, even if we are surrounded, even if we are infiltrated, the fact is this is our time. And there has never been a better time for us to be faithful Catholics. And we may discover that there never was an easier time for Catholics who just simply by remaining faithful become saints. And that's what we're here for. You know, and it might have seemed easier in the 13th century where you could take classes from Bonaventure, go down the hall in the afternoon, take a class (laughs) from Aquinas. But the fact is, this is our time. And this is what our faith is for, to give us the hope that through the the fire of charity we can have a joy that really is more than just good feelings it's more than optimism it really is something that is rooted and grounded in that neglected virtue that we call hope mm.
1: you know you start with with marriage as that that beginning point if catholics would live out the sacrament of marriage And live it out well that becomes such a powerful place where the faith can be witnessed to but also a place where the faith can really take deep root so that as we're navigating through this exile as we're navigating through a world that's often hostile within the context of the family and the catholic household we're going to find a real stronghold but at the same time an evangelical opportunity and i think this is a really important piece because when you talk about Jeremiah, uh, the Jeremiah option, uh, chapter 29, included in that list of things to do to survive the exile is to get married and have families. That's right. right? Included That's there right. Is, is to build houses and and stay where you are, but but be faithful to the covenant wherever you are. And this is such an important piece. And then if we, if we look at what happens when married couples are faithful to that covenant, when they live out the sacrament of matrimony, they start to form communities and then other families start to gather around them. And then you have these, these communities forming without necessarily being intentional as in the Benedict option intentional, but the communities are forming very naturally, but almost in secret, almost subversively you know, and then they can kind of come out and they start to really
2: infiltrate and influence the the culture at large. And this is what our Lord is talking about when he speaks about how three measures of leaven are hidden in the loaf, you know, and we are hidden in the middle of the world. And if the world doesn't take notice of us, that's probably good for us, you know, because it gives us the opportunity to take these basic steps that Jeremiah lays out. You know, You pointed out marriage. The first of the seven is build houses and live in them. You know, not just pup tents. We're not just Bedouins. We're not just going to be, you know, renting a cheap apartment, but we're also not going to be dynamiting, you know, the tenement slums of, you know, the pagans who live around us. We're going to find constructive things like building a house and then living in it. In other words, rediscover a future orientation. The second step builds right upon it. Plant gardens. And eat the produce in other words get to work when you're done building a house move in plant the gardens and enjoy the fruit and share it if you have some extra but this idea of hard work and fruitful labor gives us a kind of hope for the future that people around us are going to take they're going to take notice of this you know and then to nail this third point is take wives and have sons and daughters in other words it's not just me in my apartment it's not even just me in my big house with my garden it really is being oriented to others and nothing pulls a man out of himself more than marriage it's kind of like a a personal spiritual exodus event and then when you have kids you look at her body and still see the beauty but you realize that beauty ain't just for me i mean that is to sustain our sons and our daughters as infants and there's something of a beautiful breakthrough And in the process of raising families, you're creating memories. I mean, even if you can't afford to go back to Jerusalem, and if you did, it would still be in ruins, you can make memories for yourselves in the way that you live as family life. The fourth step builds right upon the third, and that is take wives for your sons and daughters. In other words, long-term planning, not just one or two generations. Don't just plant the fall crop so you have food in the winter plant these forests so that in 50, 60 years, you might not be alive, but your children and your grandchildren are going to benefit from the lumber, to build the furniture, their homes and all of that. So this idea of future orientation, networking, social interaction, extended family culture, so you are not just kind of living this insulated, isolated, semi-paranoid existence, which again, given our own cultural situation, that would be totally understandable. It just isn't good for our kids or for our grandkids. If they see us living in fear and anger, they're going to want to break out. And I've seen it. I think we all have seen it. But if you can sustain joy and hope, even in the face of adversity, hostility, and persecution, then you're going to realize that light doesn't have to crush darkness. It just simply drives it away. And so you live out that light. Number five, multiply there. And do not decrease. In other words, do the math. If you're building houses, if you're getting married, if you're having kids, if your kids are having kids, then you are going to grow. You know, this reminds me of what, you know, Stephen Covey distinguished between the sphere of concern on the one hand and the sphere of influence on the other. We're concerned about 101 things that we have no control over. But in the sphere of influence, we have maybe nine or 10 things that we can actually do something about beginning with ourselves, our spouse, date nights, prayer time, you know, and little baby steps. But in the process, what we do is like a pebble in a pond. It just sends out ripples. We're not going to decrease. We're not going to basically vanish. We're here and we're going to grow. And the spread of joy is what we're for. And, you know, the sixth thing in some ways, I suspect would have been the most disturbing of all of the steps thus far, because Jeremiah says, seek the welfare, in the Hebrew, the term is shalom. Seek the welfare of the city to which the Lord your God has driven you. Do what? Say what? You know, I would rather see Nineveh destroyed, like Jonah felt, you know, than Babylon, you know, continued. But the purpose is, we're out to make disciples of all nations in the Old Testament, as well as in the New, and you see... That Daniel and his three friends, renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, though they're in the fiery furnace, they're in the secular culture Babylon, they set into motion what brings about the conversion of the Babylonian emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, and other people. He issues a decree that the God of Israel is the one true God, and I'm only a king because of him. And so just stay tuned and follow this because the results won't just be natural flourishing, but a supernatural blessing. And the seventh and final one is arguably the single most important one of all. Love your enemies. That's number six. But pray to the Lord on behalf. In other words, your prayer life, your interior life. You might not be able to go to the Jerusalem temple for Passover. It's in ruins. But you can light a candle on the Sabbath. You can gather your family around for prayer. Advent's coming up for us. We can gather with the four candles and the Advent wreath and do the scripture readings as well as the prayers and the Jesse tree or other things. You, you, you can't do everything, but that doesn't mean you can't do anything. And the seventh principle of the interior life in so many ways is the principle of the Sabbath. That is, you put God at the center. He will become the source of your life, but not just your physical life, but your spiritual life. And you'll discover just by faithfulness, that a long obedience in the same direction is going to bring about the grace of conversion, not only for you, for your spouse and your kids, but for your neighbors and the teachers who have your kids in class who don't understand why do they have what I lack? Why do they have what I'm looking for, but I can't find? And I just think, you know, if we say, well, I want to be a saint but I don't care about my family. That's crazy. Well, I care about my family, but not the neighbors. That's crazy. Well, I care about the neighbors, but not the pagans down the street. That's not an option. And so if it seems humanly impossible, just say to God, look, you put us in this situation, you know, make lemonade, help us, oh <laughs> Lord, to transform it.
1: Yeah, you you bring up the the letter uh, from the second century that describes Christians as living in the world but not of the world, uh, pilgrims, and yet they're they're here. They're citizens of the city of this earthly city. The Epistle and to Diognetus. Yeah, it's so powerful, that. right? And as as they're as it describes the Christian life, uh, it's it's distinguishing Christians from the world while still planting them very firmly in the world. So all right, we we look at the world right now and we see these different things going on and it's really easy to get upset because some of the stuff that's happening directly impacts our children and our families. That's some right. of the stuff it's impacting our society right now. How do we, how do we keep an eye on those things and, and be that leaven that gives some kind of influence to the, especially when it's local, while at the same time, not allowing ourselves to get caught up in the anger of some of these issues, there are things threatening families, threatening children. There are things that are, are, are not appropriate for kids. That's being pushed on them in schools. How do we, how do we keep that proper balance and virtue when some of the stuff really deserves our wrath?
2: Yeah. You know, I, I think we have to practice a sort of temperance, Mm. uh, the virtue of moderation, especially when it comes to the news cycle and even our favorite cable network. Uh, And when it comes to election years, presidential or otherwise, we have to really be moderate in how much we consume, because that is the sort of thing that leads us to anger, to despair, to whatever else that we face, you know. And I also think that we have to turn to our Lord in prayer. We have to study the lives of the saints, but we also have to read the Gospels to discover how highly unoriginal our circumstances really are. When you think about where we find ourselves today, you know, here we are, we're people who, for the most part, are striving to be virtuous, and yet we find ourselves afraid of our government, and not just the secular government, but sometimes even the priestly hierarchy who are going to say, oh, we're just too whatever, you know. And what am I describing? Well, family life in the 21st century, but the holy family in the first century. I mean, Jesus was born to Mary and and Joseph, and they're striving to live a virtuous life, and yet they're in the crosshairs. They're being targeted not only by King Herod, who takes out all of the Hebrew male children there in Bethlehem except Jesus, but even the priests seem to be somehow complicit because they know Herod doesn't want to go there and worship the baby. So why devolve the Micah prophecy and tell them the birthplace of the Messiah is just seven miles away in Bethlehem? And it's not just like the first month of the life of Jesus. It's the last week when you look at how He had proclaimed the gospel. He had done the public ministry. He had healed. He had delivered. He had done all of these things, you know, and Hosanna to the highest turns into crucify him. We want Barabbas. It's like, come on, get brains. What are you thinking? And yet you you see all of these circumstances crashing down around our Lord. And then, of course, it all leads to Good Friday, the single darkest day in history. So why call it good? Because on the one hand, The single greatest crime the human race has ever committed against the Almighty God and Creator of us all just so happens to turn out to be the wellspring and source of the salvation of His executioners and the rest of us. You know, we hear growing up, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. This ain't lemonade. I mean, this is God saying if I can turn the single greatest sins ever perpetrated into the source of the salvation of the human race, don't think for a minute that you are in over your head. Well, you're in over your heads, but you're not in over mine. And so he just almost seems to prefer to heap up adverse circumstances so that when he acts by delivering the holy family to Egypt, by resurrecting Jesus from the dead, by bringing about a transformation that nobody saw coming, it's going to be Psalm 115. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be all the glory, because we don't even want to take partial credit.
1: Hmm. You know, I so appreciate that you that you bring it to that place of this story isn't new. The things that it's we're not. living through, the chaos of our world, it's not new. And this biblical wisdom for the journey home, I think, is, is really key. Um, you mentioned the the priestly hierarchy, and I think this is an, an important thing right now for a lot of Catholics. There's a lot of people struggling, a lot of priests, frankly, struggling. Uh, if I can speak as a priest, because what you we're may. thanks, thanks, Matt, appreciate that. Sure. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Matt. Yeah, because um, what we're what we're hearing right now is that especially if you're an American priest, and if you're especially if you're an American priest under the age of fifty. Uh, that we're scandalous because we wear a cassock or because we, we wear clerics or that we're rigid or that there's something backwards about us. And that doesn't jive with the reality of what I know. As far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm a pretty straightforward sort of a person. I, I say the black, I do the red. Uh, I, I read the gospel and I try to preach it as, as accurately as I can. And there's a very real place in which I think a lot of Catholics right now and a lot of priests certainly are kind of feeling exiled within the church. Uh, As though, as though there's, there's a desire to push us out. Um, And this is a strange kind of a place to be because it's one thing to, to have that sense of building a house and staying in it and, and starting a life in a foreign territory. I get the epistle to Diognetus, right? I get that idea because that's the whole world that we've always lived in is that there's, there's always going to be some opposition to living the faith, but it's a really strange experience to have that kind of coming from or feeling like it's happening within the church. Whether it is happening or not is a different story, but it feels that way. And so it's bringing up a lot of questions. What advice would you give to Catholics, to priests, for kind of managing that reality, that it's it's feeling like some of that persecution
2: is not from the outside, but from within? Great question. Thanks, Father Sam. You know, you started off by pointing out how Frequently, it's been the case that the people of God have faced this sort of adversity. I mean, you look at life after the flood. You look at the life of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're promised the land, but they never owned a single acre. You know, you look at the life after the Exodus when they're wandering in the wilderness. You look at the centuries that were spent in conquering the promised land, and they never really held it for long, and they were corrupted by the Canaanite inhabitants. And so you realize that the vast majority of even the Davidic monarchs were corrupt. You can count the good ones on one hand. But conversely, what we often fail to recognize is the complicit clergy, the leaders. I mean, when you look at Aaron, okay, you see the golden calf. When you look at Korah, you look at the Levites, you look at the book of Numbers. But you basically see that Jeremiah himself was a priest from the Levitical family, from the town of Anathoth, but he was targeted not only by the secular rulers in Jerusalem, but by his fellow priests, by the false prophet who guaranteed that Babylon would fall, that we would rise. You're such a political pessimist, gloom and doom and all of the rest. He's thrown into a pit. He's left for dead. And Daniel's not treated much better. Isaiah before them, he was stuffed into a log and sawn in half. The first of the prophets to be martyred. And and, and once again, you find that the clergy who are striving to be faithful are never going to win popularity (laughs) contests with their fellow priests because, you know, it's just that way. And when you step back and you take it in, you realize okay, the old French line that the more things change, the more they stay the same. But then you could really learn from the lessons of every, you know, of every age, every generation, and, and why it was that you know the the plan for the Great Commission was not let's go to Rome, let's find the best educated senators who are the most popular, who got the highest percentage of votes, let's make them the 12 disciples, and we're just going to win. I mean, once again, you see that God chooses to do more with less. His strength is perfected in our weaknesses. So Paul, whose curriculum vitae, his resume was impeccable. But, you know, while the false apostles would boast of their credentials, Paul says, I would prefer to boast of my weaknesses, because then God gets the glory and God's strength is manifest. And then people who are facing the kind of adversity that he faced have absolutely rock solid, rational grounds for hope. I mean, if we're only going to be logical in following philosophical reason and we have professed the sacred mysteries, we've got to realize that to not seize the hope that is set before us, as we read in Hebrews 6, is basically not only to be unfaithful, it is to be irrational. And so when we recognize no pain, no gain, no cross, no crown, and as Paul tells the Corinthians, this slight momentary affliction. Is what God is using to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory. We want to say, stop, Paul, just shut up. It, it's not slight, it's not momentary, it's it's more than an affliction. Right. You know, it seems like a plague, but no, look at it in the light of eternity, and you'll see that an eternal weight of glory is gonna cause us to blush the first minute we get to heaven. We're gonna be embarrassed at ourselves for having just gotten so close to giving up hope giving in to despair. But Paul says, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our country seems so permanent, the White House, all of these institutions. But I remember spending an afternoon in the cabin of Dr. Billy Graham and his wife, Ruth, who back then in the, in the 80s had famously said, if God doesn't judge America, He'll owe Sodom and Gomorrah a personal apology. Wow. Thud. It's like, whoa. Yeah. That's a that that isn't you know, that isn't altogether wrong. You know? <laughs> and so I remember hearing Father Benedict Rochelle addressing these high school kids at this, at this conference on our campus. He said, in 50 years, I won't be here. Most of you will. But the institutions that you think are permanent, the visible buildings that just seem so permanent, They're not going to be around. The only thing that will be around is Jesus Christ and the Holy Eucharist, the succession of the apostles, the sacraments that will make us saints. Count on that, not on the the promises that the politicians are making. And he could have said back then, you know, we'd look to Christ, the high priest, to work through our priests. But I know, I mean, my son, Father Jeremiah, is a wonderful priest. But he also goes to confessions like his dad does on a regular basis Mm -hmm. because we're weak. And yet his strength is made perfect in those weaknesses. So let the river of living water, the medicine of his mercy flow. And let's not just say, well, that was warm, fuzzy religious rhetoric for that podcast. No, this is reality. This is truth.
1: You know, it's, it's interesting. The warm, fuzzy stuff, it doesn't, it doesn't work and the warm fuzzy stuff doesn't yeah. really doesn't really take us anywhere but when when you simply say that the the simple fact like we need confession we're all sinners who need god's mercy guess what people line up to go to confession when you encourage people to have that love for the Eucharist and to recognize that Jesus is here, people show up for it. They they want it. In this, we're in a time of Eucharistic revival, right? And in this time, there's people who are showing up and coming to understand Jesus present for them in a way they've never understood it before. Um, and I think this is this is a, a key piece of that of that growth. You know, just like you said, Doctor Han, that sometimes we have to moderate the way that we watch the news. So as not to get caught up in too many things, I think the same thing is true with Catholic media. Uh, I find, as, as much as I love, I love the Pillar, I love Catholic World Report, I love the Catholic thing. You know, I love reading these guys and, and listening. You love to, Veritas Catholic Network. I do love Veritas yeah, right. Catholic Network. That's very <laughs> love true. It. Yeah, um, but I, lo- I love like consuming all of this stuff. But I can also find that it gets me pretty easily discouraged, and I need to come back to my own parish. I need to come back to Mm. right here where the gospel needs to be preached and to right here where there are good people who are striving to live their faith and who remind me of who I am as a priest right? Good people, good families who are are striving for that and kind of come back to this and build them up instead of worrying about the stuff that I can't control, um, like what's happening at the Synod on Synodality or what's happening uh, with different cases that have been making headlines like Father Marco Rupnik, and I can't control anything about that. Uh, Bishop Joseph Strickland, I can't control anything about that. But I can be present to people right here in Fairfield, Connecticut and pray with them. And, and try to walk with them. And I think that's such an important piece to, to keep in mind.
0: The, the Jeremiah option reminds me a lot of the little way, you know, where you have to love God as best as you can in the small action you've been given. I guess I'm saying that to you, father, but. Matt, I'm going to embarrass
2: you. I'm going to say, you nailed it yes! once again. <laughs> yes. That's that is exactly two for two. Right, you know. <laughs> and, and the fact that St. Therese could teach us and lead us on the little way, we also thought about calling it the Escriva option because Ooh, his spiritual I wrote classic,
0: down the words Opus Dei. <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, because what St. Marie Escriva does in the way in his other writings is to show that this is not just true for sisters in convents. This is true for our brothers and sisters out of the middle of the world. You know, and we just thought the Jeremiah option has at least the canonical authority of an Old (laughs) Testament prophet, you know. But both Brandon and I have learned a whole lot from the work. And, you know, one of the things that we also do in this book that I want to emphasize is we point to a little-known Polish prelate by the name of Cardinal Stefan Wyszynski. And I can just say this. His treatment of hard work I mean of hard labor. You know, Jeremiah talks about planting gardens. Well, you can't do that without getting your fingers dirty, without getting the dirt under your nails. The idea that you are sanctified through labor, that work becomes an instrument of sanctification, and it also strengthens your own prayer life, and it keeps you so that you're not just distracted by the ecclesiastical gossip that we can find in any one of a number of sources that are all really fascinating and orthodox, but unhelpful. You know, and so the idea of Stefan Wyszynski, he becomes the spiritual father of a better known person named Pope St. John Paul II. (laughs) But Polish Catholics would have said there would have been no John Paul if there hadn't been Cardinal Wyszynski. And I mean, the time that he spent in prison, beaten and tortured by the Nazis, then the Soviets, but always getting back to work, the work of prayer. As a prelate, but the work of encouraging lay people to get back to their jobs and to make friends with their co workers. It doesn't matter if they're Catholic or not, they're co workers, and so they ought to be friends. You know, this is all the stuff that we associate with St. Jose Escrivá. Escrava. It's the spirituality of the work. But to have Exhibit A, Catholic Poland under the boot heel of Hitler, then Stalin, then to come out in a way that ends up revealing a spiritual luster that is greater than the countries that just caved in or never even had to face the German Nazis or the Soviet Marxists. And he talks about longanimity too. That's another term that you know, we emphasize mm-hmm. and that is the perseverance, the forbearance, mm-hmm. the idea that we have got so much, I'll call it stuff to put up with, You know, that's flying in our face almost every day and into our ears as well. And yet, that perseverance, that forbearance, is precisely the forge in which we become saints.
0: I'm thinking of of y- you referred to marriage as a as a personal exodus earlier, um, and you may have caught my smile. Um, I did.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but I am I'm th- I'm thinking of I'm, I'm going to do it again, Father Sam, do and right. I apologize I, for it in no, advance. That's great. Father Joseph Gill of Restless um, <laughs> once mentioned to me that marriage is the way that God chooses to rid people of their selfishness. Or it's the, the most common way that, that God chooses to rid people of their selfishness. Um, and with that in mind, right? Excuse me. With the little way and marriage in combination, I see how these seven steps will lead to my personal sanctification. But then you're saying, you know, make friends with your coworkers who aren't Catholic. Uh, or, or your coworkers. Period. You know, and okay. I'm saying, thinking to myself, well, this Jeremiah option then is not only a way to strengthen your personal community, which begins with your family and then leads into other Catholic families, but it it, it becomes a manner of evangelization. Um, and I think I think that as I mean, maybe I should just speak for myself, right? Actually, certainly I should, but I kind of like I kind of like when God throws thunder down and lightning. You know, like I really like that picture of lightning striking the Vatican the day Pope Benedict XVI had stepped down. I think that's awesome because it was this like massive thing, you know. Um, but God tends to work in without being seen. It's invisible, right? And it's, it's under the radar and he asks you to take every small step with him in my limited experience, you know. And, and this is that nitty gritty right? That getting your hands dirty by planting a garden, yeah, like, yeah. like that's, it seems so menial to just plant a garden. Um, but to plant a garden and then share with your neighbor isn't menial.
2: No, it, it it's, Please, it's more yeah. meaningful than all of the glitz and the glamour. Right. And the public attention.
0: Right. And, and I think that, I think that's why I've, I had thought of a little way because that's that's where real sanctification happens, you know. I am not. I mean, I, yeah. Every once in a while, I'll do something very heroic for my wife. I admit to it, but <laughs> but for the most I'm part, sure it's she's, like I'm wait. sure
1: she's very happy that you're admitting. <laughs> she's gonna to love your to heroism. hear all this. Yeah, that's great. Yeah,
0: um, <laughs> but for the most part, it's changing my son's diaper in the middle of the night. Yeah which is so hard. <laughs> like, Speaking I, as, I as somebody who has never had to
1: change a diaper in the middle of the night, that's actually heroic. So I'm going to give you credit for that. <laughs>
0: yeah. and, um, and I <laughs> think right. even further than, even further than and Dr. Han, you tell me if I'm on the right track here, even further than just changing my son's diaper in the middle of the night, it's being nice to my wife while I do it. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like exactly. that maintaining that sense of charity to my wife despite the fact that i'm exhausted she's inevitably more exhausted than i am but self sacrifice in the small things um, anyway that was a that was a whole lot to throw out all
2: at once well let me um, let me respond yeah, please. to it um, i mean I, I we've been married 44 years now we've got six kids and now uh, the 22nd grandchild is on the way and I have this, I have this maxim, it's like twofold. On the one, I learned it from an older friend who has gone through the 12 step program and sponsored probably over a hundred people. You know, I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. <laughs> when oh. you first said that, like, you nailed me. And then the other thing is, if I didn't know me, I might be impressed, you know? And so that personal exodus by which we're pulled out of ourselves through marriage, through family life, through diapers, through cutting the grass and all of the other things, You know, the Lord takes that up a level or two, you know, and in prayer, I've heard our Lord say this a thousand times in about 999 different ways. And that is, Scott, I want to make you holy much more than I want to use you to make other people holy. You know, thank you for your yes. You know, you are willing to be an instrument by which I can sanctify other people but you are not simply a means to an end. I want to make you holy more than I want to use you. And I'm just like, okay. But what life almost always teaches me is that the success that I I, I strive for, I hunger for, it invariably is much more of a blessing for other people. It's in my own personal failure, my own personal affliction, my own personal weaknesses and trials, that God gets close to me and says, now I am working on you. Now, you know, you are growing in your trust in me without going into any of the nitty gritty. I mean, just in the last three weeks, first time ever in 66 years, a concussion with stitches, you know, and then surgical procedures that were outpatient, so not very serious. Oh, and oh yet, feeling the weight of my own mortality, waking up in the middle of the night in agony, turning to Our Lady in the Rosary, and feeling such comfort, such. Um, what's the word, you know, parasia, confidence, like a little child and, and her intimacy, her accessibility, Jesus too, where I can leverage my weakness and affliction for grace and mercy so that they pull off little minor miracles that nobody notices but me because I can get through the day. I can be pleasant with Kimberly. I can be nice to the kids. I can even be nice to my students at midterms, you know, <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> Glory to you, oh God! Glory to you! Your <laughs> strength, my weakness. What a powerful one-two combination! You know, I might just become a saint.
1: <laughs> I've heard that you're a very merciful grader, though, Doctor Han.
2: I I, um, I
1: never had yes. you as a, as a professor, but that's what I've heard. I've heard that you're very merciful. That's good. Uh, <laughs> if if we can look at the at the life of the church right now and see see kind of that same idea of um, parasia interiorly finding that place of reliance on god um and and we're reading the news we're reading the things that are going on we're we're seeing all of this and and as americans too i think we are very much we're very much catholics but we're we're also very much influenced by our culture right and what what is american culture like more than the apocalypse we love the idea of the apocalypse. Uh, we love the idea of the end of the world and and everything else. And so, whether it's uh, you know Armageddon back in the '90s and like the the space movie with the asteroid coming to destroy the Earth, Independence Day, the aliens are going to come and take over, um, or the sort of the religious like the Left Behind series that was that was really popular at the early part of the 2000s. Um, We kind of love looking at the idea that we're in the end times or that the the end of the world is coming, but where do we then as Catholics find that, that real trust in, in God? And too often, I think we get swept up in looking at these, at these other things, looking at the signs. And it's, it's not that we shouldn't read the signs of the times or pay attention to them, but do you ever feel like we we get too caught up in that sometimes we need to come back to the, the fundamentals, the basics and stay grounded.
2: You know, I'm glad you mentioned the apocalypse, Father Sam, because more and more people are Because you're an American. About... <laughs> yeah. But I mean, especially with the Gaza missile strikes, yeah. especially with this horrendous conflict in Israel now that has canceled all of our Holy Land pilgrimages and whatnot. You know, it's like always back to the book of Revelation. You know, I was just talking to a group of guys, uh, two of whom had read Catholics in Exile And both of them had reread in the last, I guess, three or four years, The Lamb's Supper, The Mass is Heaven on Earth, the book that is now slightly over 20 years old. But, you know, when I tackled the book of Revelation in that book, The Lamb's Supper, I I basically lay out what I discovered after I translated the entire book from the Greek into English, to all 22 chapters, that the term Antichrist doesn't occur a single time, nor does the term rapture, nor does the phrase the second coming. Not that the book is unrelated to those things, but clearly the book is not primarily about those things. We want to make it about the things that, you know, I want you to scratch where I itch, and so I want you to answer these questions. Well, no, figure out what are the questions that the apocalypse is answering, because you will find... That the only thing that is there on every page, the beginning, the middle, and the end, is worship, prayer, liturgy, you know. And so it's the Lamb of God, Lamb of God, Lamb of God, twenty-eight times in twenty-two chapters. It's the Sanctus, the Trisagion, the Holy, 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 the Gloria, the Amen, the Alleluia. You have the liturgical vestments, the liturgical furniture. You have the first half of the book is all wrapped around this scroll that is unsealed and then proclaimed as having been fulfilled by the Lamb. And then all the action shifts from the book to the altar where you have the chalices that contain wine. But by the time it's poured out, it's become the blood of the covenant. And then all of the faithful are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so you'll find that the liturgy is what gets the church through every period of her history where she faces persecution back before 70 AD, again, in the late 90s, in our own time too. My favorite chapter in this book, Catholics in Exile, is the third chapter, the Exodus as Liturgical Pilgrimage, where God basically flexes his muscles and destroys all of the deities of Egypt in the first nine plagues. But the 10th one is the Passover. He institutes the liturgical feast. And then they come out of Egypt. Well, how do they enter the promised land? Once again, it's liturgical. Gather for worship. Follow the Levites who are carrying the ark for seven straight days. And on the Sabbath, the liturgical procession, blow the trumpets. It's a call to worship. How are we going to fight and destroy Jericho? There's no way until it's gone. And over and over again, it's when David rediscovers the ark of the covenant that the conquest is complete. It's only when Catholics rediscover that the power of God is available in the sacraments through our liturgy in every single mass that we are going to wake up and realize all we've got to do is just say yes every hour of every waking, you know, of every day. And once again, I think we're going to go back and realize, okay, the apocalypse is all about what? Sensational items that are going to be splashed on the headlines. No, they're not. They're going to show us that when we enter into the songs and the prayer and the sacrifice of the martyrs, of the angels and of the saints and of the mother of God in chapter 12, that we enter into the kind of proof positive that we will become saints, not in spite of the hardships, but precisely in and through and because of them.
0: So considering that, that the liturgy, right, is kind of your avenue through troubles,
2: Right.
0: Um, was that one of the reasons that you wrote and I'm, I'm, I'm looking up the name of it right here, breaking the bread, a biblical devotion for Catholics. Was that the idea behind it that you were, you were trying to lead people into the liturgy with, exactly? With specifically I mean, this
2: conflict in mind? Yeah. I mean, back in 1970, when we adopted the Revised lectionary, what nobody noticed was there hiding in plain view we had a 400% increase in the amount of scripture, mostly Old Testament readings that we have from every period of salvation history, from every part of the Bible. And it was always deliberately coordinated like it was in the early church. So you're hearing the promises of the old fulfilled by Christ in the gospel. And yet none of the seminaries got the training. None of the professors were instructed. So for one, two, now three generations, very, very few people have done this. And so We're working with the clergy. Three times a year, we hold a priest retreat for the St. Paul Center. We had nearly, well, over 600 last year. And they go through this period of a week, almost a week, where at the end, they say, did not our hearts burn within us as the scriptures were opened? And then, of course, the eye-opening event is when the Eucharistic bread is broken. But you need the laity to form a partnership with the clergy. And so this book that just came out days ago called Breaking the Bread, a biblical devotional for Catholics, is looking at year B, which starts in like one week or two. And we're going to be going through the law and the prophets and the gospel of Mark. And we're going to see this pattern unless we don't, because we're probably not going to hear it in most of the homilies, but we can do it for ourselves and for our family members. Just by opening up this Bible devotional, you're going to see next Sunday's readings And I connect all of the dots and I show how none of this is haphazard, but all of this leads us to see that the main event is the Eucharist where the fulfillment of the old covenant is going on in the mass every bit as much as it was in Emmaus at the table back in the first century. And once again, it just—it strikes people as just too good to be true unless you realize this is the truth that we profess as the mass turns on the hinge of the creed. What if we believe in God the Father Almighty and He really is just that? Then maybe all of these hardships are designed to make us holy. But we got to take Him at His word. We got to recognize this. And as I look back on the last 40 plus books that I've done, I did a semi academic book called The Kingdom of God as Liturgical Empire, a theological commentary on one and two Chronicles. And book after book after book just shows us that what matters most is the mass. And the better we're prepared for that, the better our family's prepared for that, the more we're going to come away with grace, even if the homily stunk. You know, there's the creed at least. And over and over again, I'm seeing a new generation of priests being formed where the homilies don't stink. They really are good. They are a kind of prophetic utterance that will feed us no matter where we're at. Well,
1: I feel like if we There's get breaking the bread,
2: to thank God.
1: I feel like if we get breaking the bread into the hands of more families, then it's like it gives me a pass. Like if I have an off Sunday, yes. it's okay. Um, <laughs> it's gonna, it's gonna be all right. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you know, I won't feel so bad. No, I think this is actually hugely important because that that exact phrase that you said, Doctor Han, uh, the the laity and the clergy working together. Uh, what you're promoting there, what you're suggesting there, that's that's the ecclesiology of lumengentium in Vatican II, is that yeah, there's exactly there's right. not while the church is hierarchical, there's there's not this stark separation in which it's clergy over on this side and laity over on this side, and there's opposition and ne'er the twain shall meet. Rather, it's we're we're supposed to be working together and, and we need to see ourselves as being on the same on the same team. One hand washes the other. Exactly. And so I I love this, this idea for, for the laity, especially uh, the, the, the idea of the the family life and the building the home and planting the garden, get, getting right in there in, in, into the world and and being there. And then from the perspective of, of for priests, uh, teaching the faith in its fullness, proclaiming the gospel, knowing what it is that's supposed to happen, celebrating the mass, most of all celebrating the mass well, and and making it something that uh, the people will, will be able to understand at least something of the mystery that they have. Um, yeah. So we can we can kind of start there the, the, at the broadest level where most laity and clergy come together, which is in, in the parish. But let, let's go a little bit further. Like, what do you think we need from the
2: the higher levels of the hierarchy, the Pope and the bishops? Well, what we need is they're striving to be faithful, and I think most of them are. It's just hard for them as it is for us, you know. But I think that when the bishops recognize. The power that has been entrusted to them is from heaven and not earth. It's to make saints and not politicians. You know, we want to encourage them, you know, and not just the Bishop Stricklands, who I count as a personal friend, but the whole wide array of bishops. They have the most humanly impossible task of all. They want to be faithful, some more than others, some do it better than others, but I think they'd all pass a polygraph when they'd say, I want to be a good shepherd. So what we got to do is help them be good shepherds in the The best way perhaps is to buy is by being not just kind of blindly obedient sheep, but those who quickly follow whenever they hear a word that they know is true and it's from God and that kind of thing. That partnership of clergy and laity to me is the indispensable thing. You know, historians have kind of brainwashed into thinking that there's church and state and that's a myth, a kind of postmodern myth because, you know, the church is not reducible to the clergy. No, the temporal authorities, like my own bride, who happens to be the city councilman at large in Steubenville, she's not a member of the state. Clergy and laity form the church, and the clergy administer the sacraments, and the laity, empowered by the grace of the sacraments, go out and do what? What Vatican II said. We sanctify the temporal order. We don't just relegate it to the sinners and the secularists. No, we've got to recognize there's such thing as holy secularity. When you separate the two, that's secularism. But to bring together the sacred and the secular, the sacred is not opposed to the secular. The sacred is only opposed to the sinful. And so if we can get in step, the clergy and the laity, and not just the priests, but also the bishops, and not just the religious, but also ordinary lay men, lay women. You you mentioned, besides Catholics in exile and the more recent book, Breaking the Bread, a biblical devotional for Catholics. I must say the one book that is like a tie, it's like a three-way tie. This book just came out days ago. It's a children's book. It's my third children's book, but it's based upon the Lamb's Supper. It's called The Supper of the Lamb. I co-authored it with Emily Stimson Chapman. Mm. But Emily is a genius, and she's a poet, and she transformed the Lamb's Supper into the Supper of the Lamb which is the most beautiful. I already know at least two of my kids have memorized it now. It's so well done, you know, and one of my grandsons, Johnny, I shouldn't have said his name, but in any case, he just went to first confession, you know, and and there was anxiety. Of course, there's going to be angst, you know, and there's the list, there's the weight, and then there is the penance. And then he crumbled up the list of his sins that he took into the confessional, threw it in the wastebasket and said, so long, suckers! <laughs> <laughs> this guy is well catechized. Good, yeah. awesome, he yeah. will not be defined by his sins, but uh, by God's mercy. Oh, that's so good. That's outstanding, man. Uh, yeah,
0: well, I, I, uh, I love everything we've been saying here, especially because I think it's creating a an authentically Catholic culture. Seems to me to be to be the antidote to being cultural Catholics if right. you will in the negative sense of the word. Yep. Right where, you know, there's there's the joke that uh a man gets on a bus and sees a priest in in Rome and and the the priest says to the man, you know, sir, are you a Catholic? And he goes, "Of course." And he says, "Okay, well where do you go to mass?" And the guy looks at the priest and says, "I said I was a Catholic, not a fanatic, father." <laughs> you know, and 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 it's it's the antidote to that, right? Doing all of these things well, being a well-educated laity, having that 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 teamwork between the laity and the clergy, right? And and that looks like diving into the scriptures and understanding the liturgy and praying it well and and celebrating it well as a priest and praying through it as a, as an individual in the pew, also known as a person in the pew. That's the second time I did that, Father Sam. Where I called persons individuals. <laughs> individuals. It's okay. um, they are individuals. That's true. That's true. You know? Uh, but the idea of that being the antidote to us, you know, just like growing up and being like, well, I know the Our Father. I don't ever say well, th-
1: it. So that, that's a good point, Matt. I, I really like this idea that it, it's the antidote to just being cultural Catholics, but we're creating a real Catholic culture. Over over history, what we've seen is that Catholic culture really does look different, though, depending on its location and its, its moment in history. So Catholic culture has has changed. Um, for us as Americans, Catholic culture has always been sort of under the current of the rest of society, right? Because Catholics have never they, this is this is a place where Catholicism is was never the the religion of the country, right? And so now in a very secular world, now in a time when our our culture at large has changed so much, Doctor Hahn, what do you think the Catholic culture? is looking like and and will look like? What are some of the markers that you see there?
2: Well, you know, at one level, I must admit that American Catholic culture is a lot better than I could have possibly hoped for. <laughs> I think that's When I true. came into the church back at the Easter vigil in 1986, it's not nearly what it needs to be or what it should be, but it's so much more. And I think back to 86, when a similar poll had similar results that showed that 70% of Catholics living in America back in the mid-80s thought that the Eucharist was a sacred symbol but not the real presence. And so, you know, there's a sense in which we haven't come that far, but there's another sense in which the national Eucharistic revival that the bishops and the priests and the and the lay people are spearheading together, I mean, this is going to bear fruit. But Matt, you mentioned that fellow on the Bosch, you know, I'm not a fanatic. It seems to me that the key to really cause Catholic culture to flourish naturally and supernaturally is to overcome that minimalism. You -hmm. know, what? Go to Mass. I'm not a fanatic. You know, nobody is a minimalist in any area of life that matters. You know, when your team is on the field, You know, you're not going to be content because they're doing the minimum amount of work necessary to lose the game, but look still professional. You know, (laughs) you want them to be, you know, completely maxed out. Likewise, on the job, if you've got people under you, you're not looking for minimalists who are just checking the list. Likewise, the people who are looking at you are not looking to see if you do the bare minimum in your hobbies. With music, at concerts, in movies. Nowhere do we default to this minimalism. Right. And so, in the one area that matters more than all of the others put together, in terms of eternity, divinity, and what I'll be judged for, it's like, you know, our culture offers us insanity. What the church offers is sanctity. And the only sane response to it is to say, look, I'm not just going to accept these profound truths in a way that I'm going to yawn, crickets are chirping, you know, I'm going to take it for granted. No, there is a combination that needs to be rediscovered and really cultivated. And that is the combination between the profound and the passionate. I mean, people are passionate about Britney Spears and all kinds of other things. But if, if we hear that God Almighty is our Father, that Christ died to pour out the spirit of adoption, that we are called to be his brothers, that we are empowered to become saints. The only sane response to these profound mysteries is to say, let's get passionate about this. Not warm, fuzzy feelings that fade but at the same time, if we see ourselves passionate about our favorite soccer team or local high school football, that's great. That's understandable. But if you see people who are passionless and joyless when it comes to the sacred mysteries that we call the Catholic faith, there's we need a reality check. Do we really mean it when we profess this to be true? And if we profess it, then let's possess it. Let's allow ourselves to be possessed by it as well. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Cool. Well, I know we're kind of winding down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm looking at I the I got to get and... back home, but I, I got to tell you, Father Sam, I got to tell you, Matt, like before, this was fun. And I just want to <laughs> thank you for the, you know, I guess it's called virtual hospitality, but I mean, extending the gift of friendship and the gift of gab and conversation, allowing me to go on and on and sometimes way too long, you know, but oh, just keep up the great work and thanks for your encouragement. Thank you very much, Dr. Dr. Han. This is great. You are
0: welcome anytime you would like (laughs) to.
2: I'll take you up on that. You nailed it once again. (laughs) That's it.
0: I I don't have to do anything else this year. (laughs) We'll have to get video
2: working next time though. Yeah, it'll be great. For sure. Thank you
1: so much. It's been great having you with us, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn. Catholics in Exile Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. Uh, it's available through Emmaus Road Publishing and everywhere you get your fine Catholic literature. Great. He said nice things about us, Matt. <laughs> 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 that was so cool.
0: I got the uh, I got the treatment of last time. But double time. Double time. Okay? I increased by two hundred percent.
1: You have once again put your finger on it precisely. Right on it. Just amazing. Yes, what, yes, man, what a yes. guy. I like that yeah. we can just ask him a question and Dr. Scott yeah. Hahn can
0: fill in things that I would never have thought about. Right. And he can just Absolutely. he can just go. It's it's just fascinating. And, yeah. and it's, fun to, it's fun to come on to episodes and be a student.
1: Yeah, well, that, that's how I feel, and that, the last time we talked to him, that's how I felt, and when he gave our priest convocation here in the Diocese of Bridgeport, that's how I felt. Just
0: oh, right, I forgot it he was, did that. Just
1: actually. beautifully drinking from this fire hose of knowledge <laughs> right. that he has. But you know what a what a voice, what a gift it is that we've got somebody like him in the in the life of the church who's who's Definitely. speaking this way. Like we we really need it, but also really exciting to. I don't know. This has been coming up a lot. I'm actually doing a a faith on tap tomorrow in Stanford. And I'm going to, I'm going to talk about this, this very idea of like keeping an eternal perspective while the world is chaotic. And so now what I have to do is bring the book along and just tell people you should buy this book and read it. And that'll be it. I'll just be basically shilling books for
0: Dr. Scott Hahn, which there you go.
1: Could be a lot worse. Right. And,
0: And kudos to you for plugging the podcast. Oh, I'm, and kudos to anyone who went to the Faith on Tap, made it this far, and knows what we're referring to. Because yeah, <laughs> right now, the, the Faith on Tap is a future
1: reality, but by the time this <laughs> podcast comes out, it will be in the past. So we're yeah. Oh my gosh! Whoa! <laughs> I promise I will also plug the tangent on Veritas Catholic Network when yeah, I when go. I give this talk. But
0: it's I think that um, the operative word from this conversation was hope, though.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because you know, and
0: it's it's been
1: hard. I, I'm looking at the at what's going on in the world and it, it feels like just constant, constant assault. Yeah. Uh, and, and the things that are happening in the world, it, it's feeling very much... And maybe this is me getting old. You know, maybe I'm just demonstrating that. I'm I, sure it is. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I am become an old man and, and I'm just kind of getting crotchety and, and grumpy. But I'm like, since when did everything change? You know, all this stuff is happening. <laughs> and and all of a sudden words don't mean what they used to mean. And there's, yeah. there's crazy stuff getting No, that proposed. isn't
0: you becoming an old man. I've thought that exact same <laughs> sentence before. <laughs> but there, there are things that are happening
1: that it feels like, to, to one who believes, all of a sudden, I am now accused of being a bigot, being backwards, not understanding people, and being full of mm-hmm. hatred. And I don't, I don't think I hate anyone.
0: No, I, I'm, and I'm, I'm trying really hard not to. You are none of those things. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's
1: how we end up feeling. And I, I don't mean to just speak for myself, but I know that there are other people out there who are feeling that way. And then to, to, to say nothing of what's going on in the life of the church right now, that there's this, this division and this, this tension that exists. But it's so good to have this. And I, I really am grateful that he goes to the scriptures to have oh, biblical wisdom for this yes to be able to recognize that this is not the first time that god's people have faced difficulty this is not the first time in the history of the world that there has been this pushing away from the covenant so the biblical wisdom is really helpful now i wonder if there are any church historians out there who are writing books like this who could give us the the historical perspective from the life of the church that in the history Mm -hmm. of the church We have had this kind of division and disruption and tension and questioning and everything like that. But it's really comforting, exactly like you said, to hear that word of hope. Yeah. I'm with you 100%.
0: Yeah, what I had written down along with Opus Dei and Little Way. um,
1: Which were two great little points to bring up. By the way, let me just yeah, praise well, you and, for and, that. That was well done. And certainly
0: the ones that I, you know, that he he approved of. Yeah. <laughs> um friend of the show. Friend of the show. Doctor, no. You know, first
1: friend of the show. You know, you know what we didn't do? Um, you know what we didn't do? We didn't what? we didn't confess to him that we we sometimes call him Uncle Scott. Yeah, uh, next with time. that that deep affection and love. It's it's all it's yes, all. Of course, yeah, I of I course. think we'll sh- we'll share this with the St. Paul Center so that they can see it and and give it to to Dr. Han. So maybe he'll find out this way.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um but I, I also wrote down confidence, yeah, right that that the hope would would lead to a confidence as a as a member of the church, within the confines of our culture, you know, both both ecclesially and secularly. but even I even loved that he said secularism and sacred are not contrary to one another you're supposed to sanctify the secular holy secularism and that blew my mind so
1: well it was it was reminding me of when we had father ken and we Mm -hmm. he spoke about that idea of so often we hear we know how the story ends we know who has the final victory and he says that's great but what's the score right now Mm. and when the score is close and when the scoreboard doesn't seem that great it's hard to have that confidence so yeah. this is the good reminder to, yep, I wholeheartedly, and I think you wholeheartedly agree also with what Father Ken was saying when we had him on, mm-hmm. that we have work to do to to change the score. Yes. Like we're, we're a little behind right yes. now, and we, we've got to pick up the pace. But at the same time, to be reminded that there's good reason to be confident, that Christ has the ultimate victory, the triumph is his, it's not ours. There's good reason to have that confidence. And Dr. Scott Hahn is killing it with that. nailing it. Amen. This is great. Hey.
0: And 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 just to add I know I amen and now I want to add a point which is contrary it's, to the way amen's work. No, it's okay. This is a, but, a
1: new a new thing that we're going to amen now. So yeah, we're say, trying something. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um keeping in mind right the the way that he referred to Paul boasting in his weakness, right? This is something where you can get discouraged and and shouldn't get discouraged, but if you do, it's probably in light of feeling weak in face in you know in in the face of this challenge um that's an invitation right on you know and i think that's easy to forget that that's that's an invitation to lean on the lord something an analogy would be i've often heard before that loneliness is actually just an invitation to spend time with god who is himself I'm not saying God is lonely, right? God's in a perfect communion of three persons, right. right? But but the idea that like Jesus has chosen to lock himself in a tabernacle, you know? And so that loneliness is the invitation to go and spend time with him. So too, the difficulty in the face of this challenge is an invitation to lean on him. It's always an invitation. Um, and so not only does this book provide you with the game plan for hope and for confidence but it provides you in a sense with that initial instruction of you can't do this without him you have to lean on him and and i found that very yeah i found that very helpful
1: (laughs) can i amen you now because that's absolutely true you're right we can't do it without the lord we can't do this without jesus we can't do it without the eucharist yeah yeah all right hey man this is great yeah. I'm real grateful Thanks to
0: all our, all our listeners for sticking around through this this new experiment. The Tangent Outro. The
1: Outro. Thanks Keep to Matt music. for organizing this uh, this interview with Dr. Scott.
0: On. That's my pleasure. Hey everybody, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to further support The Tangent, please consider subscribing or following on your preferred platform. Following us at the tangent underscore Catholic on Instagram, or even donating at veritascatholic.com. See you next time. God bless.